I'm glad that you're here today. We come into church to meet with Jesus. Let our hearts be open to the Lord, and I believe the Lord wants to speak to us all today. Through the Word of God, truth that we won't hear any other place. So when you come into church here, it's about Jesus. And we are going to read Luke chapter 9 this morning, uh, parts of it. And we're going to follow four words that trace the movements of Jesus through Luke chapter 9. And they reveal all that we need to know about him, and then they call for a question. And it's been my prayer for you this week as we got ready to come to this moment in the history of the world, that you would hear the words about Jesus and you would respond to his invitation. So we're not going to talk about things that are going around in the world. They are troubling enough outside of here. But in here, I, I've been praying that our hearts would really focus on Jesus, on who he is, and what he promised that he would do, and the fact that he showed his glory, and then asked, what are you going to do about that? Those are the four words, the identity of Jesus, the prediction of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and the invitation of Jesus. So I'm telling you in advance what I'm going to tell you, that at the end, you might be in a place where you could respond to the invitation of Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, you can't do nothing. You must respond. And we're going to celebrate baptisms this morning, um, two in this service, eight in the next service, in which people are announcing, have made a decision. I've stepped into the kingdom of God by faith. Jesus brought the kingdom, and the kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. Would you agree? It's here in the sense that we know the king, and he's revealed himself, but there is a very strange reality of living today in our present situation, knowing that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he has, by grace, forgiven our sins, but the kingdom is yet to come in its fullest measure. But we have stepped into the kingdom of God. When we trust in him, we become part of his kingdom. Now, all of the Gospel of Luke is unfolding in a beautiful way. The story and life of Jesus and his teachings are beautiful. And you might be here today and say, I love his teachings. But his teachings were such that they called for a response. And that's what we're going to see at the end of today. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to Luke chapter 9. Four words, identity, prediction, glory, and invitation. In Luke chapter 9, verse 18 says, Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, They say you're John the Baptist, but others say you're Elijah, and others still that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Now here's his identity in verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, spokesman for the whole group, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. This happens in Matthew 
as well. And in Matthew chapter 16, when it occurs, uh, the answer to Peter, you are the Christ of God, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed to you that I am the Christ of God. Now, if you're not used to coming to church, the word Christ is an important word. It's a signal word. It means the Messiah. You are the promised Messiah, the one who all of the Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed to. And here he is standing among the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And their answer is, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Come from God. And until you come to identify that Jesus is that person, you don't know who he is yet. I was playing golf this week, and um, I usually, when I play golf, try not to say what I do for a living, but um, invariably, it comes out quickly. And sure enough, on I don't know what hole it was, but he said, what do you do for a living? I have kind of an answer I give sometimes when I'm playful, but I didn't give him that one. <clears throat> I usually say I'm, I help people with their long-term investments. <clears throat> and I usually say, well, like retirement? I said, no, longer, longer than that. <laughs> it's like, okay. But I didn't do that today. <laughs> For some reason, this time I just said I'm, I'm a pastor of a church. And it always gets a little weird when I say who I am. I'm, I'm a pastor because invariably they start retracing the things that they've said over the course of the time. I said, I'm a pastor. And at some point in the conversation then, he said, well, did you always know you wanted to be a pastor? And I said, no, I really, I didn't. He said, well, when did you know? And as I was, I was answering him, thinking about this passage, but the difference in my life that changed the course and direction for me was that I came to know, and I said to him, I said, I used to be religious and go to church a lot, and then I really came to discover that Jesus is who he says he is, and it changed the course of my life. He, he really is the Son of God, and he, he is who he says he is. And when you know that, everything changes. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Now, the Messiah was, was thought to be one who would deliver his people. And so as Jesus is here in the context with his disciples and now preaching around um, Jerusalem and Galilee and Capernaum, they're all starting to think, well, maybe this is the deliverer who's going to deliver us from Rome. Because we are an occupied land, and if we could just get rid of Rome, and so there was this great energy around maybe the deliverer is going to really be a political deliverer for all of us. And that is not what the Messiah came to do. The Messiah deliverer came to be one, as we'll see in just one moment, who would deliver through his weakness. We'll see that in a moment. But before we leave this, this is a question every one of us in the room have to answer. Who do you say that I am? If Jesus were here today, he would say, who, who do you say I am? Oh, you're a good teacher. You're a miracle worker. You're a revolutionary. You changed the world. Right, 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 right. And not enough. 
until you can say that he is the one deliverer Messiah, the Christ, who came from God, you don't know him yet. And you have to know him as that. That's how he came. He didn't come to be a great teacher, although he was. He came to be the deliverer Messiah from God. And it's possible that you're here today and you know about him, but you don't know him yet. And I want you to just think about, he came to share his identity. He's the Christ. Then in a remarkable change, verse 28 says, uh, verse 21, excuse me, he said, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one To tell no one, you're the Christ. Don't tell anybody. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. After his identity is clear, he makes a prediction. And if you want to know something fascinating about Jesus, Jesus predicted throughout his ministry, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer at the hands of evil men, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be buried, and then he was going to rise again on the third day. And Andy Stanley was the one who said it. Anybody who says, here's my plan, I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again, and he pulls it off, you, you should consider that. And Jesus makes this prediction about his life, which doesn't strictly align with Messiahship and delivery. I'm going to be crucified. If you look again at verse, um, let's see, 43, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand. Jesus is predicting in this chapter, this is a turning point in the book of Luke, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And one more verse, verse um, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You have three verses in this text, this chapter, in which Jesus is predicting his death. And so for some reason, we miss the fact that Jesus was a, an excellent teacher, a miracle worker, and changed the lives of people, and he was the Messiah, but the Messiah didn't come in the delivery system that people were programmed to think about a Messiah. Instead, his prediction was, I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. That was his prediction. And you know what? He did it. You can't just look away from that. Jesus said, I will do this, and he did it. So what will you do with Jesus? There's one more word before we get to the invitation, and that's his glory. His glory. Um, after this, beginning in verse 23, he has this little section, which I, I love to preach, but I can't, where he calls um, up us to be followers of him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And then in verse 27, he begins a section talking about his glory. Look at verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God. That's remarkable. Jesus is saying to his audience in the context of this, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God before you die. Now, I said that it's true that the kingdom of God is here, but what Jesus is saying to them is you're going to see a glimpse of the glorious kingdom of God before you die. So if we read the next verse, verse 28, Luke is helpful. Verse 28, not on the screen, says, Now about eight days after these things, he took Peter and James and John and went up to the mountain to pray. Eight days after he said, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God before you die. Luke helps us understand when that's going to happen, I think. I, I take verse 28 to mean that now we're going to see verse 27 fulfilled. He takes these three, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain, and they're praying. Now, what often happened when the disciples were with Jesus, and Jesus said, let's pray together? Whatever happened? Yeah, a lot of times they fell asleep. They fell asleep, and that happens here. But the glory of God is seen in verse 29 while they're praying. 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you a few things about this verse. He's praying, and his appearance was altered. Something physiologically happened to Jesus so that his appearance changed altogether, and his clothes became dazzling white. The New American Standard translation says, um, gleaming like lightning. And you, what you have here is a picture of while the disciples are napping, Jesus' appearance is changed to the glory of God so that brilliant, gleaming light, like the brightest of lightning on a dark night. Just think about the storm you were in when the lightning lit up the whole sky. That's Jesus in his clothes here. And what is God doing? He is pulling back the curtain a bit to see the rightful glory that belongs to the King of Kings who laid aside all of that to take upon human flesh to be found in the likeness of humanity as he lived on earth. But they're getting a glimpse of it. And there's two men talking with him, Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they understood it, but somehow they were recognizable and seen there to be known to them, and they appeared in glory. They, they are not human. They're glorified bodies. And they spoke of his, everybody, his departure. I would circle that because it's going to be a clue for something. That is the Greek word exodus. He's talking with Moses about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in what happens in Jerusalem? He's talking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain in the disciples' presence about what is going to happen in Jerusalem when he exits earth. 
He's talking about his passion, his glory, his, his time there. Now, as uh, verse 32 says, Peter and those who were with him were heavy in sleep. Aww. But they became fully awake, and they saw his glory and the men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke just adds, not knowing what he was saying, because he was terrified. Matthew's account actually says that when they woke and they saw the glory of Jesus' face and his clothing, they fell on their face terrified. So Peter, in, you know, he, he owns this. He talks a lot. And he, he spoke these words, not really knowing what he was saying. And the, the text flows to the next verses. Um, in verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I take that to mean that Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah. The disciples were sleeping. They be, they're becoming awake. They see this. And Peter responds to that by saying, this is a remarkable thing. We should make tents for all three of you guys. And in that moment, the cloud comes. Now, what do you think of, those of you who know your Bible, you know history, what do you think of when you think of the cloud arriving? You're thinking of Moses' life, leading the people out of Israel, and the Shekinah glory of God was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and what happened when the cloud came to the mountain where the people were, what could the people do around that cloud? They couldn't get near it. God warned, if you touch the mountain, when the cloud is on the mountain, you will surely die. You have to see the transition that's happening here is this cloud is the glory of God coming down just like the Old Testament Shekinah glory and the glory of God is here. And Peter says, let's build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. And almost in response to that instinctual statement, God says, Hold on. God says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Let's read the last phrase together. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's almost as if God is responding to Peter's comment by saying, don't you dare think about putting Moses and Elijah in the same category as my son. There are no tents to be built for three people. There's only one here. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's as if God is saying the cloud is where the glory of God was in the Old Testament, but it was sort of a primitive presentation of the glory of God. And God is now saying to the disciples here on the mountain, this is my son. He possesses all glory. He is the one all glorious. 
This is why Hebrews tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God. What is happening on the mountain is a glimpse of the glory of the coming kingdom in the spectacular realm, showing Jesus for a brief moment in the glory that he deserves. You don't seem excited about that. Think about it. These glorious robes are going to be gambled over is who will get them at the cross. His face on fire with glorious dazzling light is going to be beaten and spit upon and scourged. This son of God who is worthy of all glory is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer there on behalf of the sinners of all the world. But here's a glimpse of his coming kingdom. You see the movement? The identity of Jesus is he is the Christ. His strange prediction is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die there. But before you die, I'm going to show you a glimpse of the coming kingdom. And so he takes these three up on the mountain and he shows his glory to them. And they get to see what it's going to be like. I just want you to see what is happening is that the kingdom of God is here. But it's not here in its fullness. So Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom. But he doesn't have a triumphant ending. He has a brutal ending on the cross. And then he ascends to heaven. And the world is still a very broken place. Would you agree? But the kingdom is beginning to grow. And people's lives are being transformed by Jesus. And it's as if in this transfiguration, he's saying, this is what the kingdom will be like. The Son of God in his glory. And all things will be right, but not yet. It is a helpful picture of the movement of what's happening in this, um, in this text. Now, one more word that I sort of passed over. In verse 32, they, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. You know what the word glory means? It really means weight. They saw his weight, his the matter of who he is. The glory of Jesus is worth and heavier than any other thing. When you step into the kingdom of God, it is when you recognize that the glory of all of our life belongs to Jesus. All glory to him. And the way we would illustrate it is, um, I fall short of the glory of God whenever, for example, I give more weight to something in my life than I do to Jesus. So, when I worry and I'm anxious, and sometimes I am, I'm giving more weight to my circumstances than to the authority of Jesus over my life. When I worry about my money or my health or I'm more about my job, I give more weight to that than I give weight to Jesus. And we just have this beautiful picture 
in which the identity of Jesus has been revealed, the prediction of what he was going to do has been made, and a glimpse of his glory is given so that the only thing left that I want to finish with today is sort of an invitation. Then what will you do with all of this? You ready for that? All right, so at the end of the chapter, in verse 57, there is um, a glimpse of how Jesus responds to people. Now, I would say this. It's political season, and we're all bombarded. You heard last week we don't talk about that here. You're free to talk about it. We encourage you to be involved, but it's political season, one of the unhappy seasons of the year, I think. And part of it is because we're all a little skeptical about politics. Because politicians promise you everything, and then they normally fail to deliver. And I was thinking, you know, Jesus would not have made a very good politician or even a pastor if he was starting a movement. Today, when you start a church today, you want to attract people, and you will take whoever signs on. Politicians make a promise to get your vote. That's all they want. And Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not, Jesus, it's a funny way to start a movement because the way this text unfolds in the invitation, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Now, Jesus' answer is kind of chilly. If someone said, I want to be a part of your church and I want to, I'll follow you everywhere you go. I said, come on, come to membership class. We take warm bodies. No. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I see this invitation that Jesus is making earlier to follow me, and now he's sort of saying, hold on a second, I'll follow you anywhere. And I think what Jesus is doing to him in this kind of chilly response is you don't know yet how hard it is to be a part of the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom glory is coming, but we're in a broken world. And I think what Jesus is saying is, I, do you see me with wealth, with uh, prestige? Do you see me with um, all of the things that when you think about a kingdom coming into its flourishing capacity has all of the beautiful... Jesus says, no, I don't have that. I don't have any of that. And if you follow me, you might not have that too. I think Jesus is saying, you're an idealist. And you think, oh, I just rush right in. And I'm going to make a quick start and follow Jesus. And then it gets hard. And what do we know when it gets hard? We've heard these, some of these parables that there's a fall away that I didn't know it would mean that I'd have to sacrifice. I didn't know that I might be uh, abused by people, that I might be accused, that I might be slandered, that I might be persecuted. I didn't know that there would be trials in my life. And Jesus said, no, to follow me is a countercultural decision. The world is not following me, but if you step into the kingdom, do you, you should realize that I, I go without. My kingdom is built on weakness and suffering and ultimately the cross. 
And I, I get a picture of this guy being one who just says, uh, I don't know. Does that say the kingdom's not worth it? No, what Jesus does say, here's what, I, here's what I can't promise you. I can promise you forgiveness. I can promise you the Holy Spirit. I can promise you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. And I can promise you that I will never leave you or forsake you. And I, I promise that I will provide for you in all the ways that you need. And I promise that when your life comes to an end, you will enter into the glory of the kingdom. But I just want you to know that if you have an ideal idea about the kingdom, that everything's going to be better once you step into the kingdom of Christ, it might not be just that way. Do you know what I'm saying? How many of you have come to realize that even though you came to know Jesus, there are still some hard things in this broken world? Yeah. I think that's what he's saying. Hold on. Count the cost. And then the next two who respond are similar. They, they both say something a little bit different, but the invitation, um, he said, uh, the next verse to another, he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury the dead. As for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom. Maybe we should need, see the next one because they're very similar. And he said to another, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me say farewell to the people at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, the first guy says, I want to bury my father first. Now, in Hebrew tradition, if his father was dying, he would have been required to be at his bedside. But he was with Jesus. So I don't think his father was facing imminent death. Rather, I think he's making the decision that I'll be a part of your kingdom, Lord, um, after my father's gone because he might not approve of me doing this. Or he might disown me, or worse, disinherit me. Wink, wink. When a father died, his inheritance would move on to his sons. And so he, I think, was saying, I will follow you, but first, could I just wait until my father dies and I get my inheritance, and then I'll follow you. And the other, let me go back and say goodbye. Jesus says, no, if you come to me with conditions, if you come to me saying, I will follow you, but I'd like to finish college first. I'll follow you as soon as I make it. I'll, you, you fill in the blank. You get the idea? Jesus is saying, you can't say to me, I will do this with conditions about how I will step into the kingdom. Jesus is the Christ of God. He predicted and carried out his death. He gave a glimpse of his coming glory. And we cannot say to him, I got who you are and I will follow you as soon as I... No. Jesus is calling for a response. Inviting, but calling for a response. And there just can't be... Um, conditions on full commitment. I have to step over and say, I'm there. I, I give my life to Christ. This is not full obedience because none of us fully obey, but we can fully commit and say, Lord Jesus, I know you are the king and I will follow you. Um, Tim Keller 
recounted an episode in which St. Augustine recorded a now fairly famous prayer. St. Augustine was a brilliant philosopher, but he was, he was living with a woman who was his mistress. And he went to hear the great Ambrose of Milan preaching, and he was very convicted by the preaching that he heard from Ambrose, who was preaching on the holiness of God and the significance of the Ten Commandments. But Augustine loved his mistress. And what he said has come down to be well known uh, at a prayer that many people pray. And this is this prayer. O Lord, make me good, but not yet. Make me good, but not yet. I will do this when. And I wonder if you're on the fence and you haven't stepped over and part of today is to show you who Christ really is and what he, what he predicted he would do and he did and the glory that was revealed about him that is coming so that today you would say, yes, I am going to decide to trust in Christ with all of my heart and take my anxieties, take my failures, take my sins, but Lord, I trust you. I know who you are. That's stepping over into the kingdom. And it won't mean everything is perfect till we get home. But we will get home to his glorious kingdom. Where are you today? My prayer for you this week is that you would make it certain I have decided to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. When you know who he is and what he has done and that he is the glory of God, you are faced with a decision. To step over into his kingdom by faith and believe, Lord Jesus, you are who you say you are and I trust you. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out, he said. And so right where you are today, I, I want to encourage you. Are you ready to give your life to Jesus as he is in the fullness of who he is, the glorious Christ of God who died for you that you would be forgiven? Oh, Father, open our hearts to believe in Jesus to trust fully in his person and his work and his gift of salvation. I pray for any who have been on the fence saying, I will do this when, that you might just call them today. Let them hear your voice, that today is a day of salvation, that they could trust in you. Lord, this is what we pray for, that we will see you as you are and live in the kingdom here, not fully here, in faith and obedience and joy and peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.